Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, that there's still time to shift the trajectory of the massive, complex juggernaut of our culture and turn it away from consumption and destruction and instead towards the majesty of life. We still believe that in doing so, we can create a future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. And as we head deeper into this new year, the whole idea of this feels more alive and more essential to me than ever. So I am utterly delighted to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Gail Bradbrook, one of our world's deepest thinkers and most committed activists. Gail is best known for being one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, and now she's a key part of XR's Being the Change Affinity Network. But as we move into the new year and XR changes direction, we wanted to look back on the learning. As we say in the podcast, this was one of the longest, biggest, and most extensive experiments in horizontal organising ever to have been practised. This was actual application of sociocracy and holacracy, and all of the other technologies that we talk about so often on this podcast. In XR, they were put to use. And so, in what for me was a fascinating, inspiring, and at times deeply moving conversation, Gail and I were able to explore where XR has been, what led Gail there in the first place, and where she's putting her energy now, and how we can shape ours in similar ways. As with Eva and Justin last week, this felt like a real breath of fresh air. So people of the podcast, please do welcome Dr. Gail Bradbrook. Gail, welcome back to the Accidental Gods podcast and Happy New Year. At the time of recording, we're only just into the new year, just enough to have wrestled with the HMRC yesterday on the first day of full operations. Sounds like hell. So that apart, our question going into 2023, which feels to me like a year of real transition. 2022 was us understanding that the world really is changing and it feels to me as of 2023 as the year really sits down and goes, okay, nothing is as it was. Let's see how we can make it different. So I have a question for this year, which is, what makes your heart sing? And where does that lead you? Thanks, Manda. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, there's quite a few things come to my mind when you ask that. I um, had a really nice time dancing on New Year's Eve. So being in my body and uh, <laughs> what did it lead me was to get in bursitis, <laughs> old lady hips. Uh, but that's another matter. <laughs> And, oh, look, I'm just showing you my little pouch that's got Amanita muscaria on. I was waxing on about Amanita or fire garrick. I think relationships with the non-human world as a way of deepening my own humanity. So I've been, I've been binge-watching, I have to admit, AmanitaDreamer.net's videos about this mushroom because I've always wondered about him or her, we're not sure if they gender, 
um, and our relationship with that mushroom, which is very associated with Christmas. Apparently, when when people in Nordic countries were snowed in, the shamans who served this medicine would drop it down the chimney because they could get because of the shape of the houses uh, ah. and other gifts that that people were sharing around. So that red and white Christmas and the magic, and the sense of magic, you know. So I have tried a little microdose uh with this mushroom and um it's interesting yeah but there's a lot more to learn and I have a sense that it's coming back in the next few years in a big way this mushroom this yeah into our lives that opens up so many new ways to go that I wasn't expecting and resonates really beautifully with what Eva Schoenfeld said in last week's podcast because I asked her the same question and for her connecting to plant energies particularly was was what made her heart sing. So just a, an aside on the Scandinavian countries, when you drop it down the chimney, does it then burn and create a vapour that everybody breathes in? Or were they dropping it down as a parcel for people to to collect and then... As a parcel, yeah. And then you make it make a tea from it or, or make yourself kind of Scandinavian equivalent of hash brownies or something? What? How do you take it? <laughs> Well, there's, as I said, there's lots of information on AmanitaDreamer.net. There's lots of different ways. One way is you can make an oil uh, and you can rub it on your hips for, I think, for um, sciatica and things like that. So there's some very wonderful herbalist witches called, called the Seed Sisters that I got to hang out with in the summer at Green Gathering. And they had they have rediscovered the flying ointment, oh, right. which is the ointment that we believe would have um been pretty much guaranteed if you had it pretty much guaranteed to see you burnt as a witch right right and witchcraft comes with some sexual energy i don't think always but that's part of the magic and that you the 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 way you take that so that has 15 different herbs in 15 different herbs in there a reconstitution of this medicine i guess or magic potion and I, I don't know if people know but you take it through your vagina so um with a broom handle and then you fly and that's where the witch's flying comes from wow. not that i've you yeah. know done that with a broom handle i'm necessarily recommending that <laughs> too much information we there don't need to go there bits of chemistry associated with this mushroom that um depending there, there are two main ingredients muscimol and ibotenic acid and it depends how you treat it and it's very small amounts so I, I just to be very clear if you see that mushroom don't go and eat it, it you can you'll end up in spasms in your body and possibly in a and e so uh what i really love is when people are helping us work out what our relationship is and the nature of the relationship and it seems to go back to ceremony there's a lot to do with ancestors um interesting times to to learn yeah and and a kind of way of decolonializing our own past or at least getting getting to the roots of who we were before the the incredibly misnamed enlightenment and even potentially before the invasion of christianity and everything that was crushed there we we could go all the way down that route and i'm thinking that might be a bit of a rabbit hole. So so let's lift out a little bit, because it seems to me that use of psychedelics is very much in the air at the moment. The, the use of psychedelics for therapy and end-of-life treatment. I was reading recently about, I think, Lou Reed, one of, one of the famous pop stars who was 
becoming quite agitated as he was dying and his partner gave him a tab of acid, as you obviously do under those circumstances. Wouldn't have been my first thought, but she did. And he calmed down immediately and said, oh God, it's all about love. Everything is about love. And then he became completely peaceful at, you know, would be, I think, a calm way of saying it. He became iridescent. Mm. and died like that. And it struck me, I read this ahead of teaching the Dreaming Your Death Awake, that wouldn't it be a really good idea if we all learned that lesson before we were 30 minutes away from dying? And yet it seems really hard for us to let go of the angst of being human. And and as we move into this year of total transformation, I'm really interested in what would it take for us to let go of that? Mm. So so here's an avenue of questioning. Mm. You've been associated a long time with XR. Things are changing within XR. We can look at that potentially. But I'm much more interested in the fact that whenever I talk to anybody about how do we need to change world governance, or even recently I've been talking to ChatGTP, the bot AI that everybody says is going to replace us all. And and apparently you can ask it to write a novel in the style of, I don't know, Lee Child, and it'll write you a Lee Child novel. So therefore, Lee Child is, is going to be redundant. I would say, from my experience of it, this is not true. I've asked it to write several novels in several different states, and it's not remotely readable stuff. But I have asked it its answer to a number of quite core world questions. And it comes out with stuff that to me is pretty bland but always hinges around we need to change the governance structures and the democratic structures of the world, which I think actually is probably quite radical. And you have been within a big organisation that has deeply embedded within it horizontal structure, which is where everybody gets to. The governance structures need to be much less hierarchical, much less top-down, much less electing people who are manifestly unfit to govern and much more giving power to the people on the ground. And I wonder if you think, having been within this, that this would translate easily or well to national or even ecosystem area, bi-regional area, Governance. Does that make sense as a question? Mm, it's a great question. And, and lots of what you said beforehand resonates. And like you say, there's lots of routes to go with that. And actually, somehow I see them all tied together. So w- when we talk about the global system, uh, or think about the global finance system, and it's all around us, isn't it? And you, you can think about, well, you know, there's these different components, and it has these simple rules, and it's showing up in this way. But fundamentally, it feels like a monolith, doesn't it? It's such a, it's a, it's such a big a big thing to try and understand how do you change that because once my understanding is once you've set up a system and unleashed it, it no, it's like where's the off button <laughs> yeah totally I've been listening to some podcasts I'd like to remember where they were but about system change and and, and what it seems to be is creating a different system alongside the one and trying to hospice the one that you're in trying to help it to have a good death because I, my understanding is this one's on its way out and it's what it collapses into. Chaos or eco-fascism, neither great, right? So what else might we seed 
that's different. And I suppose in some ways we have had a bit of a mini experiment with that in Extinction Rebellion. We set up this self-organising system and then it runs itself and it's a, it's a phenomena, but it's relatively small scale and you can sort of step to one side and think, gosh, it's doing that thing. For example, to talk negatively about it, the way that patriarchy, uh, patriarchal ways of being and doing show up. You're like, oh, it's doing that thing now. <laughs> yeah, so that 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 makes me wonder, like, how do we uh, create systems that work well for us? Because there's something... The thing that worked well in Extinction Rebellion was saying, here's 10 principles and values, and you can do anything in the name of XR as long as you follow these principles and values as best you can. And that really did unleash a lot of energy. The thing is, you also, and when you're talking about global governance, you want a layer at the at the UK level. How do how are we all going to come together? So it's all very well if you know, XI and XR Brighton wants to focus on oceans, or XR and Stroud wants to focus on Barclays Bank, etc. But when you come together, and and how do you decide how to come together? So that's the thing. How do you make decisions at a national level? How would you make decisions at a regional level or at a global level? Mickey Cashtan did, by the way, dis- define a system, design one, and, and put it put it forwards. And I think we have to have some things in place, especially the more power that you have access to. You have to have an understanding of power. Mm. And we have to have a how as well as an aspiration. So if we say we want to mitigate for privilege... How do we do that? And people are less curious about the how for some of the principles and values than others. And that allows patriarchal functioning to come back. And you can see how certain processes like sociocracy and holocracy, these are organising formats that we've used, can be misused. So just as one example, fully horizontal, the idea is that you decentralise power. You have the power to do this. You have the power. This team does that. They're all supposed to be nested together, focused on the same purpose. That that got set up in a funny way in XR, in my opinion. And then when a team makes a decision, it should take advice. There's an advice and feedback process it should do. And I'm not seeing that happen a lot of the time for quite significant things. And I think that leads to some problems. But what's good is to have done that experiment, because if somebody wants to set a new thing up, I ha- would have lots of advice. <laughs> well, would you? Well, let, would you be happy to go with that? Partly because I'm hoping to be writing the second novel in a series, which is exploring where everything goes. So I am basically mining you now for for potential novel information. <laughs> I will definitely acknowledge you in the end notes. But let's, if, if you'd be up for that, it seems to me that nobody in the world has done an experiment in real time in the way that has been done with XR, on the scale that has been done with XR, and that the learning of, okay, this is not a bad system, but there are ways of implementing it that are perhaps less than ideal, is absolute gold in the movement that we are trying to create. So if you were to start something new in 2023, what advice would you give? Or if somebody was to, what advice would you give? Yeah, yeah, well, I am really, essentially, with XR being the change, we've been meeting together for a year as a team. And the first thing that we have done is to spend time on our relating 
on our relationships. Uh, who are we? Because we're really quite a, a sort of diverse team, different backgrounds and perspectives. And that's good. You know, that's a good thing. I think that at this stage, visionary leadership is important and to understand what that is. I, I don't know if you've come across the three horizons, Manda, the idea that there's yes. the the current one, uh, the, the, that you're in, that the, 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 this shit shower of economic system and so-called democracy and then there's the third horizon that's in your dreams that maybe there are some seeds of or some cultures that have things of value to say to us in the middle horizon the second horizon where the interesting stuff happens so recognizing things in the middle horizon and recognizing the value of visionaries and 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 especially and I I do think this has been a, a terrible weakness in in XR at the UK and Leo to understand the role of visionary leaders who aren't racialized as white and to support them to thrive in our movement. So I have a lot of grief around that, actually. Right. So let's honour the grief around that for a moment because that feels really, really big. But yeah, just because there's something... What you, what you were describing a while ago made me, th- I'm, I'm so obsessed with the hemispheres in the brain. You know, you talked a bit about some artificial intelligence and there's the part of ourselves, as I understand it the minute, and Ian McGilchrist would be the go-to person for this, the master in his hemisphere, the matter of things, that there's a, there's a part of our nervous system, our left hemisphere, that can be quite angry and it's the, it's the thing that reacts, it's the thing that's checking, trying to keep us safe, trying to make sure that we're wanted and welcomed, you know? Um... It's in the sympathetic nervous system. And we're in a system that makes us be in that part of ourselves and makes it seem like that is a good thing to be in. In part, that aspect of our humanity, it's a computer, it's a calculator, it's meant to be in service to something else, in service to life. And I really like that bit of my brain, you know, as as Jill Balty Taylor's called hers Helen, hell on earth, <laughs> gets things done, right? Um, I like problems. I like solving problems. I like, I'm interested in information and ideas, right? So that, it's, it's not all bad and wrong. It's, but it, when it's running according to its own emotional landscape, humanity's in a bad way. And that's the story. We you know, you go back to the witchers and the burn-in. We, we, we were separated from our, the, the other part of ourselves, the visionary part of ourselves, and it's atrophied, especially amongst people racialized as white. And as my dear friend Skeena was pointing out the other day, racialized as white stands for raw. Yes, doesn't it? She, she studied um, birthing and how we treat babies and what happens in the cultures that we're in to our little ones, right? So there's a so there's a thing here whereby our humanity, our, our, our joyful connected empathetic side and I don't know how you create that as an artificial intelligence by the way it's the aliveness of life and maybe you can it needs to be in charge that 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 would be a key a key piece that like we need to be able to see that and that's where I think some of the plant and fungal allies might support us to reconnect with our ability to vision yes 
And there's a lot more to say, Mandra. What I will do is send you this report that we had written by external folks looking in in a good way at XR called the Systems Realignment Project, which was like, well, how would you make this better, what you're doing? Um, what collaborative practices do you need to agree on? Um, when you put people in a system, like a self-organising system, in the face of a climate and ecological crisis where there's a lot of agitation, fear, despair, grief it's naturally putting people in left hemisphere and our culture's doing that and that's what I think we mean when we recreate things uh, the system that and we have to we, we talk about having a regenerative culture but we actually actively need to that is the foundational thing that's not a people people started talking about regenerative culture as something that we did when we have time off it's like no no that's what we have to be doing the whole time proactively consciously um, because because to be a sort of progressive left, we have to understand something there that the right isn't going to do because we have to have our USP, <laughs> put it like that. Yes, I'm remembering Anita Lawson's Entangled Activist, and this is really resonating here, of we're embedded in a system that is broken. We are raw. I love that from Skeena. Mm. Racialized as white with everything that encompasses. I watched Faith's grandkids and I've never had kids, so I've never experienced this, but watching little hunter-gatherers being domesticated mm. and thinking, why Why are we doing this? This is, it'll take them decades of therapy to get over this. Why did, why are we putting them, but, but it's, it's what is required by our culture mm. to function because otherwise we're considered wild and, and we don't fit, that, which is one route we could go down. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering a lot of things, but the thing that's rising to the top of my wondering is you said that the plant teachers might be able to help us with this. And I'm really curious as to how, because let me, let me unpick my thinking a little, which is we all love our left brains. Our, our domestication was an elevation of that reductive, linear Capacity to see things as complicated, which is to say, if I pull lever A, it will have effect B, and I will be able to map these things and everything is contained and constrained, and I can understand it all, and I will have all the answers, and then nothing will possibly happen that is unexpected. And we believe this in the face of life's experience, which is completely not that, <laughs> until we don't. But I, if it is the case that plant teachers can help us to step out of that need to be certain and become flexible and familiar with and comfortable with uncertainty. I've been listening a lot to Daniel Schwartenberger in listening to mm -hmm. um, the systemic podcasts sure, yeah. or, or how to think systemically. And that yeah. comfort, becoming comfortable with uncertainty seems to me a real key mm. and very difficult to teach. So I wonder, that, and this may be too personal and something that each of us needs to undergo alone, but to what extent have the plant teachers helped you to become comfortable with uncertainty? Or what have they helped you to be comfortable with that you weren't before? 
Yeah, thank you. I think you know, it's worth saying there are other practices out there as well, aren't there? Breath practices, body practices. Um, so, so I, I, I liked Jamie Wheel's book, Recapture the Rapture, where he's doing a sort of overview of the different types of practices. So, yes. And I, for me, there is something really special in the plant teachers. And there's um, a good series on Netflix at the minute with Michael Pollan called How to Change Your Mind. I think one of the aspects is at the minute and if you watch the Michael Pollan series there's apart from the fourth one which is about peyote and indigenous practice it's mostly about individual healing and recovery and what I think I was alluding to with regenerative cultures is that we have to understand how to collectively cultivate the good mind as Orin Lyons calls it so that's what the Haudenosaunee people's nation focused on like you you have to proactively cultivate something together there's a spirit in intimacy and there's a um there's a togetherness and that there are ways with the ceremonies and the seasons that the plant teachers have been part of i mean that can include alcohol right i mean a kaylee actually it's not my favorite thing because i like to cut loose and i'm dancing i want to be so controlled but although probably i just don't do kaylee properly but you know what i mean there are there are ways of being together as a group and it seems like uh, this is why i'm I'm interested with what amanita dream is working out that with the amanita muscaria there's it's a particular it's asking for a particular type of ceremony I'm aware of some people, and obviously to protect them because of legalities, that have have been gifted plant medicines from Indigenous practice as a way to support our remembering, and that they've been in that work for some years, and that they're now working out how to work with the psilocybin mushrooms from this land because they're quite wild. You know, they're different medicines. And I have been around and part of this stuff, right? I just, so um, for me, it is that, that thing of coming together to pray and um and it's that place with the uncertainty where you're innocently asking for help and guidance through prayer that feels like being open to life just to say something about control in the left hemisphere so i i i listened to george monbiot's new book recently regenesis on the food systems and there's, yeah, there's things and stuff about that book um, to say. His analysis of the food system, where this thing is going very mono, you know, focused, like the, I think there are four countries that grow wheat and five that grow rice, and what is that kind of thing, right? The bottlenecks, of this, it's a system that's going to collapse. So, so much desire to control actually leads to a lack of control, interestingly. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are things in his book that, you know, there's a live debate with people like Chris Smadgy, who talks about small farm futures and how we have a relationship with the land. And as one of the things the left hemisphere does, Amanda, it, it looks for everything, it makes everything either or when both and, mm. <laughs> you know, the uncertainty is often that both things are true. Like, how can you integrate different perspectives? So, yeah, I've had a lot of experience with the plants and the fungus and um, it's still a a journey, isn't it? A journey in becoming. Yeah, I think that's life at the time when we stop. The journey of becoming is the time when we stop breathing. So for sure. I'm remembering, I can't even remember whose podcast. I listen to too many and I don't take notes. Somebody pointing out that the reason acid and similar things were made so illegal was because 
it was the time of the Vietnam War and they were leading a lot of people to pacifism at a time when the American government needed people to sign up so they could send them to die or spread napalm all over innocent mm. villagers. And and the experience of what we now call psychedelic drugs was the opposite of that and therefore they needed to demonize and constrain their mm -hmm. use. And then mm -hmm. that spreads around the world because when America sneezes, everybody else follows. And and yet now people are beginning to do really grounded, really intelligent, really useful work on what happens if we begin to shift the boundaries of our minds. And I remember in my years as an anaesthetist, we used ketamine a lot for various reasons. And what was really interesting, it's one of those things where you get very left brain and everybody says, you need to understand how everything works. And nobody understood how ketamine worked. They just, they just wrote an awful lot about what they observed and then pretended that was understanding how it worked. But what it seemed to do on the occasions when somebody would give it by mistake to the horse that had not been previously sedated was it undid the horse's logical boundaries to its mind and then the entire world became a very, very, very frightening place. And once you understand a little bit about how horses are conditioned into learned helplessness, I think what it was doing was removing the learned helplessness. Mm. Uh, anyway, the horse would try to kill the person on the end of the rope because they were clearly extremely dangerous very suddenly. And and it's not a mistake many anaesthetists make more than once and some of us managed to create protocols never to make that mistake because you'd seen somebody else do it. Um, but it was really interesting that that van became a recreational drug. I think, why, why would anybody mm. choose to remove the boundaries of their mind to that extent. And the answer is that their current existence is so unpleasant that wherever they go is at least better than that, which is a horrible indictment of our current system. And yet, there's so many other ways of exploring what happens when we change our perception of reality. And I, and I love that you brought up the recapture the rapture, because he's very keen that we find ways that are reproducible and disseminatable and don't require people to have the privilege of enough money and access to whatever it is that we take. And also, I think both of us would want to be really clear that this is not a fast track to being a god. I remember in the years when I was training to do shamanic work. There were lots of people who just wanted to take ayahuasca because it was going to get them to be a shaman. It's like, hmm. oh, that's that's such a very bad idea hmm. on, on every level. Please don't do this. It's not a shortcut and it's not going to be easy. And And deciding in advance the goal that you think you want to get to by taking whatever it is you're taking is entirely the wrong way up. Hmm. So... You've had a lot more experience of this than I have. I'm really genuinely curious as to the before and after Gale of what, in what ways has the work that you've done in ceremony with trained teachers, and I think both of these are really important, mm -hmm. and under supervision and in a held space, mm. how, how does it feel? How different is your capacity to perceive reality as a result? And is it a permanent capacity to perceive reality differently? Mm, thank you. Thank you for all those stories. And yeah, 
I, I think one of the downsides of Michael Pollan's program, in a way, is that it it kind of does, to some extent, give that sense of the magic bullet moment, and that, and it can be that profound. Like a single psychedelic experience can be that profound in some pathologies and problems so there's a person there who had OCD who didn't have OCD the people that I worked with with the BOGA were former heroin addicts you know it got them off heroin so there there, there are those very big breakthrough moments that can happen I wonder how much like is also there in terms of that person's having tried lots of other things or in terms of the therapists that are around supporting the process etc I don't think it's a shortcut to wisdom, but I think it can be a fast route to healing, faster than, you know, when people are being kept on suboxone or, you know, some some heroin substitute when there is a, a process that can help heal addiction. And I think it's something like 60% efficacy in some cases uh, for certain yeah, I mean, there's there's this guy, Rick Doblin, who's been really, for, I think, 30 years trying to move forwards the science um, in a multidisciplinary way so that this, 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 these medicines will be accepted as what they are, as medicines, right? But what I'm interested in is the, is the group process, uh, which I understand very little about, um, and also the, the practice of prayer, hmm. the practice of being in in dialogue with something bigger than ourselves, with a sort of bigger intelligence and wondering, um, asking for support and help. And I my experience is that it's it's come, is that the support and help has come. Right. And I would say in terms of that question about did any of it make a permanent difference, yes, I had probably a version of complex PTSD. I, it was never diagnosed and I worked with iboga and and also ayahuasca on a particular retreat but i think it was the iboga that went in and rewired the, my body and brain wow um and i was different after yeah brilliant wow so these teachers and medicines might be one of the keys to healing our culture if we can use them in a way that isn't using them to manifest the toxicity of our culture. It's going to be a very interesting... Yeah. Because I can imagine that, like, regenerative agriculture is, is in the process of being hijacked by you know, the same multinationals that grow wheat on four countries. It wouldn't be hard. On that topic, there's a long essay just come out by Arnold Larda, and I'm afraid I can't remember his colleague's name. He wrote it with on psychedelics and sort of colonialism and uh, the so-called psychedelic renaissance as a as an act of colonialism when it gets off the path. So that's worth a read. Right. I will put that in the show notes. Okay. I think we've probably mined this as much as we can because it is it is definitely one of those things that people are going to have to explore on a personal level. I'd like to head back to, we're still unpicking, we're, we're in the overhead of unpicking how would we do horizontal mm-hmm. organising differently with the experience of XR behind us. And you spoke about the need for visionary leadership. And it struck me that this chimed very well with something that Charlie Fisher said on a podcast uh, towards the back end of last year. And he uses sociocracy within his cooperative architecture practice. But he was very clear that if you simply get a whole group of people around to discuss stuff, they will talk endlessly and achieve nothing, and that you needed to devolve power very cleanly and very clearly to the people on the ground who needed to use it, Mm -hmm. give them the power to make decisions, and then have the advice and feedback. And 
I wondered then, having visionary leadership gives the visionary leader uh, a hat to wear, a crown, a pirate's hat, whatever we call it. They suddenly become the person in the room that everybody is listening to, which can be mm. extraordinarily useful if they are genuinely visionary. If they are just someone claiming leadership, then you've instantly got a power dynamic that needs to be unpicked. How do you go about that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, brilliant questions. I think to, when we're just trying to work out how to, when we've decided what we're going to do, we're trying to work out how to get it done. That's when the sort of sociocracy and uh, advice processes and all that type of stuff helps. But you have to be very clear on what the purpose is and that people are there because they're in alignment with that purpose. And I think, again, Mickey Kashkan uses this word preclusion. So it's not about including or excluding people. It's like that people would select to be in because they're in alignment with that purpose. They're not here to say, well, I think that's sort of good, but I really want to make you be X because that causes a lot of disturbance. The issue is, you know, with with... Extinction Rebellion, it came out of um, something, it came out of many things, actually, to be fair. But one of the things was Compassionate Revolution, which was a company that myself and George Barder had set up, which was about acts of art, heart and civil disobedience. And the idea was that you'd have lots of different groups focusing as they wanted and you come together um, to focus specifically around democracy and economics. Um, but whatever would emerge, and more I've understood about social change theory, Stellan Vint Hagen's work and others, you call that the power breaking moment, and you need to know how much power you've got and what your what your target is that you could break. Now that therein lies some potentially some data and some analysis. For example, I don't think we should keep focusing on the government. Why are we going to Parliament? I don't. I mean, the symbolic is fine, but I, I just it's a authoritarian government full of sociopaths like they're not going to do what we want <laughs> yeah and they're not going to listen it, no you know and 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 if you're if you keep tickling the nose of the tiger you can enable authoritarianism so there's the risks right if you think about be smart about, about where you target if you target mainstream politics it might be that the other parties change and the Labour Party have got a no new oil and gas policy that so great you know so it's not I'm not being black and white about this so there's that side of thing. How do you make the decisions about where the focus is? I personally think the finance system is reaping more change at the minute and is worth focusing on. We've had, I think, something like five banks announce that they're not funding new oil and gas and coal. Um, some 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 of the major actors in insurance making declarations. Some of them are, are too superficial, but still, there's there's actual concrete change rather than just the alarms being sounded and it's been heard. Now, the next thing is, when then this is the nature of the difference between tactics and strategy. You can That can be quite tactical. At what point do you look back at your strategy and you say, where now? Oh, my goodness, this actually worked. XR was a prayer with the medicines, by the way. This actually, in quotes, worked to, to some extent. Where now? You know, that's where the vision, like, like what could we do together now? That's where the visionary piece is necessary and I'm I, I think maybe finally to say on that it's not about the visionary leadership being given sort of power I think power there arises because people want to listen because there's something there to be said it, it is more though 
that there are sort of certain channels of communication that people have control of. So how much listening happens to certain people. And when it's people that aren't of this dominant culture, that come from a global South culture, for example, how much work and listening are people racialized as white willing to do? How much understanding is there that sometimes you have to get used to somebody else's different language, different way of saying things, and lean in and ask questions, right? And be curious. So that becomes part of the dynamic. Yeah. Yes. And I'm remembering the Braver Angels, which is a group in the States that's trying to bring Republicans and Democrats at least into the same room to not demonize each other. Mm -hmm. And their Los Angeles chapter ended up having an entire weekend devoted to unpicking the nature of the word liberty. Hmm. And that even amongst, I'm guessing, people broadly racialized as white, mm-hmm. on either side of a political divide, that one word had entirely different spans of meaning. Yeah. And it's only, again, Eva and Justin in last week's podcast were talking about the fact they set up a process online and it followed the dawn around the world. And it went, I think, from Friday through to Sunday or Monday morning, depending where you were in the world. And they continued the conversation. People could obviously go away and sleep and come back. Simply to get to a point where people were able to speak their truth and feel heard for what they were actually saying. Mm. And there seems to me that this is essential, but that there are so few people who know how to facilitate that and probably even fewer prepared to put that amount of time in Mm. to understanding that what I heard you say is not necessarily what he thought you were saying. Mm, mm, mm. And and then if we can get to a point where I am clear that I heard you say what you actually meant to say, where does that then take us? And I gather, listening to Justin and Eva, that it takes us, the people involved, to very new places of being able to explore purpose and strategy and tactics. Mm, but mm. it's long and it's slow. And and back to left brain, right brain, we're used to walk into a room, have a meeting for an hour, make a decision, walk out and and implement that decision and not let's spend three days with 12 other people working out who we are. Yeah, important. Given all of that, in your world now, what is your purpose? What's arising as your purpose? And, and how do your strategies align with that? Well, I think that's why I said that we'd spent, with it being the change team, we'd spent a year just meeting and relating and that feels really really important I I, I sort of heard stories of indigenous cultures where different tribes are coming together and they spend at least two two or three days just hanging out before they try and do any business so what we have to understand again with this hemisphere thing is that you know when you're asking the question about liberty which bit which which person are you asking the question of literally because there's at least four different people in your body depending on how agitated you're feeling and and how, how much of the sort of machine mind control person you're in you're just you know there's gonna be a version of liberty i just want to do what i do without interference you know as ayn rand said the question is not what who's going to let you the question is who's going to stop you that's the attitude on the sort of extreme right isn't it and then there's the there's the thing that says that i can't be free as a as a social creature without the 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 blessings and the togetherness of a functional community where we all help each other to meet each other's needs like what sort of freedom is there in this sort of culture where um you can't guarantee shelter food clean water and um meaningful work you know Mm. so 
I think that the dialogue's really important, but this is what I meant again about the group practices, like what gets you in the space to be well together. So, and the very first thing is to understand that that's a thing. <laughs> so what we say in being the change is relate, repair, protect, become. That's, the, that's what we see as the arrow for humanity right now, relationship. You know, be in good mind together. Be in your own well-being. You know, find a way to be your best, higher person, right? And then repair, you know, what's ours to repair? There's so much repair work to be done, many levels and layers. Protect, you know, there's a domination system that's at play. It's going to eat, extract, excrete, consume the world and tell us all sorts of stories about why that's okay. Um, we have to stop it. That's a part of where my strategy strategizing takes me is this is we, we actually have to stop this. We, have to, we can ask companies, corporations, governments to do things differently, but see that as a communication tool. We actually have to stop it. What does that look like? I personally think there needs to be more encouragement of, um, I don't know if encouragement's the right word, probably get legally problematic, but of sabotage and smart ways of stopping things. Yeah. Can we unpick that? I, I think also I, let's be very careful of what the legalities are, but why and how? Because it seems to me the, the kind of Andreas Malm, how to blow up a pipeline or even remembering Kim Stanley Robinson on Ministry for the Future. And, and he was very clear in there that there was a violent arm that allowed the, the what Rupert Reid would probably call the moderate flank actions to take place undercover and the violent arm was what pushed the world into acting and yet it seems to me watching our current government that it would be really happy to have somebody do something violent because then they could really come down on everybody with a ton of bricks and the Daily Mail would be cheering from the sidelines and the Telegraph would be giving them an umbrella of cover and that without a lot of the work done first to not end up with people being shot in the streets, then the whole XR, we are peaceful, was a really essential part of what XR did. I, I messed up that question, but does that make sense? That, that The fact that XR was peaceful was really core. And, and if we drop that, then we lose a lot. Well, first of all, I really question the, the 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 word violence. You know, I mean, I think that it's violent to um, force people to take out a mortgage for like four hundred thousand pounds just to have a roof over their head, and and, to, and then to to have to do some kind of crappy work for some crappy planet destroying corporate. There's violence implicit in that system, right? Yes, and I think to go and break a computer that's um, in, engaged in perpetuating a, 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 the destruction of the planet is a is a move of protection i don't I, I i i think i don't see it personally as violence and i think a lot of what again quoting hopefully not misquoting her dear old mickey cashchan said something that um you want to lean towards it was something like um minimum force maximum love with service to life as the intention it was something like that that she said I, I quite get it right she said it better than that but uh, and also just to say 
one of Exile's principles and values is is non-violence, and we're very clear about how we define and talk about that. There's a longer write-up. We're not there criticising anybody else's how, how they need to operate, you know, when they're frontline land defenders in other countries. Hmm. Uh, but you couldn't do things as XR that sabotage. But I mean, you may have heard of like the t- tire extinguishers, for example, that have taken on the uh, SUVs as a as a phenomena in our culture. They've taken that on and they've been sabotaging the cars, right? And I think that has its place personally. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm more talking about the a level of coordination i think about it like an immune response which would say it's it's not like we're going to work together to ask them to stop doing this thing it's we're going to work together to stop this thing from happening it's a different focus and somebody like greenpeace needs to be leading the charge with that they've got the resources and the reach actually in my view but so it's, for example, you might be going after the insurance company that's going to insure the coal mine. You might be sending people to the front line where, where, where you're stopping stopping things on the day-to-day with bodies. Um, there may be people working behind the scenes that are dismantling the equipment. You know, there may be people that are going after the banks that are funding it. So there's a coordinated move that says, we understand there's a tendency amongst humanity to run a domination system and we now have to stop it. We have to protect ourselves from it. We don't have to hurt anybody in the process. We, we do we do the minimum damage, but we have to stop it because it is killing life on Earth. That's a shift. That's what I'm talking about. And it could be that, you know, if you're a B corporation, you would be funding some of the movements for resistance. It could be that you're, you know, we all have to, we can't just be, oh, we'll just do this nice bit over here that feels nice. It's like, how are we going to protect ourselves? Um, yeah. Okay. This is, yeah, really getting to the edge of where where we are as humanity. So what I'm hearing is that this is, if I reframe things in Joanna Macy's three pillars mm. of the great turning, there was the holding actions, mm. the systemic change and the shift in consciousness and the all three mm. needed to happen. But if you don't have the holding actions, which is the lying in front of the bulldozer that's about to start fracking mm-hmm. or whatever, then the systemic change and the shift in consciousness won't have time to happen. And we are up against Hobbes' definition of the nation state as being the political entity which controls the monopoly of violence within its own borders and and the definition of the state is is that's as far as our monopoly of violence extends and at those borders someone else has a monopoly of violence on the other side mm-hmm. and then the state gets to define what is violent and what isn't so i live in a little rural village and i've had people i would consider friends look to me as if they were on the verge of a a heart attack, purple-faced, pulsing veins, very, very triggered <laughs> by just up oil and insulate Britain sitting on overhangs over the M25 and somehow slowing down and or stopping the traffic. And they will literally scream at me about the fact that somebody might have died in an ambulance and not care about the fact that 500 people a day are dying in ambulances because the yes, government is deliberately underfunding the NHS. And so yeah. I see the logic of this, but I wonder how that maps up against the fact that 
that relatively ordinary people are on the side of the government on this one. And they think that stopping the traffic on the M25 is literally evil, but the government defunding the NHS is essential because it hasn't got enough money. Let's not go into their complete misunderstanding of economics at this point, because that's something we've spoken about on the podcast a lot. (laughs) But at what point does the government get to define what is violent and what isn't cease to be legitimate? And how do we delegitimize that? Sure. I mean, these are very live questions for me, Manda, because I'm in court on Friday and we're recording this on Wednesday. And some of these things I'll have to speak to because there's been recent rulings where they've decided what counts as violence and what doesn't. And it's 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 interesting, like, how is it not violent to, you know, Barclays Bank have put something like 145 billion of new funding into fossil fuels since the Paris Climate Agreement? How's that not violent? <laughs> And, you know, I, I take a, a, a hammer and a chisel to one window pane at six o'clock in the morning when nobody could possibly get injured in in the spirit of the suffragettes where we got our vote, like the Chartists, etc. You know, and that's they're wanting to define that as an act of violence. Is it happens actually that there was a, a, a recent survey in six, I think it was something like 66 percent of people support. Uh, non-violent civil disobedience non-violent civil disobedience so this is then defining how do we define what is violent that's the key then isn't it and i think we we get to define it actually i mean this is where when you're describing your purple-faced sort of neighbor or whatever the propaganda is extremely effective we don't have we have a media machine that's um, owned by the billionaire sort of oligarchy elites and they're driving a propaganda machine. I've been on the receiving end of it. I know exactly what it's up to. You don't have a functional democracy when you have that level of misinformation and propaganda running. And something like one in eight people think we don't have a functional democracy. I'm one of them. And all of these rulings that the judges are coming out, you can't have this kind of protest, you can't have this kind of defence or whatever. They they say, well, because we've got a functional democracy. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> is that what this is? Uh, because people are, are, are subject to um, a, a vicious propaganda that's trying to make the people that are fighting for a future for their children, grandchildren, their own lives, a functional NHS, etc., the bad guys, um, whilst it's daylight robbery. <laughs> it's daylight robbery, folks, you know, and telling that story on the mainstream media it's not easy because the elites have captured the media. So, you know, which is why our mutual friend, Dominica McCarthy, is so focused on the need to shift the media and we have to create our own media, don't we? But I think we perhaps need to understand that maybe there's just something in the stress bodies of people that needs to be listened to and we need to feel compassionate around when we have those moments with a purple-faced neighbour and say, wow, you're, you're obviously feeling a lot. Yeah, yes. And we have good discussions, actually. And it, it it's very interesting, because I live in a bubble where everybody thinks Insulate Britain and Just Stop Oil are, are heroes. And to remember that outside that bubble, there is an actual majority of people who don't see things that way. So for our last few minutes, I like, this is a genuine question to which I don't know the answer. I tend to try to ask this, but I've been listening to Schmachtenberger a lot. Uh-huh. And One of the things he said recently is when he started on this path, he'd go to somebody who'd say, you know, the problem is obviously the media. It's been captured by the oligarchy. We just need to, if we could change the media, we could change the message, we could change the stories. And then somebody else, and he'd go, oh yeah, that's right. And then somebody else would say, but obviously we need to change the governments. 
and the governance system and the whole issue of democracy, because quite clearly we don't have a functioning democracy. And he'd go, yeah, you're right. And then somebody else would say, yes, but obviously what we need to do is change the finance system. And somebody else would say we need to change the education system because you get kids young enough while their brains are still plastic. And, and on and on and on. And there's at least 20 different interlocking systems where somebody who's, it's their focus, agriculture, food and farming system, we need to change that. And we need and, and he'd be going, yeah, you're right, yeah, you're right. Oh, hang on. They're all right. And what we need is systemic change. And that's really, really hard. And I'm guessing that that concept is also very alive for you. And I'm wondering where it's taken you. Mm. When, when you're saying all of that, all these different things that need to happen, I think, well, good that there's so many of us then, eh? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to give. roll your sleeves up, folks. Which what's yours to do? So the thing, as Donella Meadows said about changing systems, there are different leverage points and different. You, you, you know, people cover the meaning to sort of say, well. Right now, this is where there's there's weakness. We could focus here. That that's the sort of smart global strategic thinking we need. And I like to know who's doing that. Daniel Schmachtenberger is a good mind on that stuff. But there's a, yeah, there's a lot, lot to change. And one of the big things is the story, right? The paradigm. What is the paradigm that we're living under? The paradigm that many of us are living under, not everybody, is the one that says you're powerless, you're separate, you're separate from life, you're separate from each other. Keep your head down. There's a machine. There's a there's a cog in the machine that's your shape. You just get to fit in and carry on, right? And that's what your life's about. Keep your head down. And I'm saying. And other, many other people are saying there's there's a new, true, old story that's re-emerging for these times that's the story of togetherness, of beauty, of being in life. And each of us gets to choose what a great time to be alive in that way. It's an exciting time. Things are definitely going to change. Who knows where we get to be part of that. Find our humanity. Understand that there is a a, a different way of being in relationship with life and actively choose that in all the ways that we're able to, which starts with yourself and your own wellness and your own connection. And one of the things we want them to do with being the change is bring an oath to life in service to life, you know, to bring forwards a way of saying, you know, we're just defining our principles at the moment, but on the back of that, that we are here in service to life and we recognise what we would call wetiko whiteness, this system, the machine mind, whatever you want to call it, patriarchy. And we are setting our arrow on life. And it's an adventure. It's supposed to be fun. And that's where we're different from the right, because it's miserable, that stuff. The control mind, it might feel better when you're in the grip of fear, but the, the, the uncertainty, the messiness of life is fun when you're in that bit of your body, your nervous system. It's joyful, right? That's the choice. Be more human. So who knows what's going to happen, whether it's going to work or not. Don't worry about it. Just be more human. Enjoy. Get on with it. Be in purpose. What else is there to do? What are you going to do with your life, you know? And there's a lot to choose, so find your bit. Relate, repair, protect, become. Fantastic. I was going to ask you if you had a last message for anybody and everybody, but that sounds like it's it. Relate, repair, protect, become and have fun in your body and in connection to the world while you're doing it. That's just glorious. Was there anything else you wanted to say as a last 
No, I think I can talk forever, Manda, my darling. <laughs> so it's great to hang out with you. <laughs> but it's so inspiring. And Gail, I just hope Friday, by the time this goes out, it will be last mm. Friday. So, um, yeah, I'm, I hope that the judge listens to the service for life and the service of life and that the result is what you need it to be. It's a magistrate's court. And actually, I, I do think it's back to what you said. The prayer is me, whatever, as my dear friend Polly Higgins used to say, whatever happens, may it be for the best. Like, it's not ours to know and to control, you know, just be at peace with it. So I know why I've done what I've done. And it's not me that's on trial. The system's doing its thing. And I'm just, I'm just going to be there watching it doing its thing. So there you go. Doing your best. Yeah. Within our dreaming group, we ask for the yeah. best and highest good exactly. without defining what that is. So Thank if it's you. all right with you, I will definitely go into my altar on Thursday night and ask for the best and the highest good for you. And let's talk again sometime on the other side of all of your various court appearances and see where you're going with your oath. That would be really interesting. But in the meantime, thank you so much for starting off our new year. Thank you. And there we go. That's it for another week. So much thanks to Gail for her courage, her audacity, her intellect, the depth of her feeling and her thinking. And by the time you listen to this, she will have been in court for one of the charges. Another is up in July. And if you want to support her, she does have a signal network. And I will put a link in the show notes together with as many of the things that she mentioned as I can find. And that apart, finding what each of us can do in service to life does seem to me to be absolutely what this year is for. So if there's any way that we can help you, please do let me know. We will bring as many of the people who are doing this as we can to the podcast. And within the Accidental Gods membership, we have the Intention Intensives, which are running one Sunday a month for the whole year. And you can drop into these. I'm hoping that we get a core group of people who will work together at depth through the year, because I do think this takes depth. But I also recognise that not everybody can turn up at seven till nine on a Sunday evening, once a month for the whole year. So if you can't make it to the first one, please come along anyway to some of the others. I genuinely believe that the capacity to set clean, clear intentions and to hold them and hone them is part of what we can offer in service to life. So if that makes sense to you, then come along. You will find us, as ever, at accidentalgods.life. That's accidentalgods, all one word, plural, dot life. And that apart, we will be back next week with another conversation. And in the meantime, enormous thanks to Cara C for her endless and wonderful work in the sound production and for the music at the head and foot. Thanks to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, to Faith for the website and managing all of the tech and for the conversations that keep us going. And as ever, enormous thanks to you for listening and for sharing. And if you know of anybody else who wants ideas radical, thoughtful ideas of how we can lean in to being in service to life, then please 
do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.